You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that knows exactly where the wild things are, if you know what I mean. Eh? Eh? The Florida eh. Everglades. I'm Megan. The Amazon? The, uh, Upstate New York. They're in Maurice Tendak's classic childhood picture book. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And uh, hey, RJ, I got a question for you. What's the question, Megan? Do you hear the people sing, singing a song of angry men? It is the music of a people who have been monetarily compensated to do an episode about Les Mis. No, that, you're singing The Sound of Music. No. Yeah, yeah, that's The not... Bond people hiding from the Nazis in their windmill. Yep, that's what The Sound of Music is about, but that's not, that's not what we're talking about today. Yes, people have made many requests of us in the almost four years that we've been around, but probably the thing listeners have requested the most, especially on Tumblr, has been Victor Hugo's sprawling epic novel on French history, philosophy, justice, politics, revolutions, subtextual, simmering homoerotic antagonism, and also some architecture, because why the fuck not? Les Miserables! You're lying. What? Art of the deal. No, no. And we better no. do it now, otherwise it's never going to happen. <laughs> Good. <laughs> never, ever. A.K.A. the miserables, the wretched, the miserable ones, the poor ones, the wretched poor, the victims, and the dispossessed. Is this a Bruce Springsteen song? <laughs> it may as well be. It sounds like a good time. Why, why wouldn't you want to read it? Well, it's finally happening, and you can thank listener and Patreon supporter Tarragon for it, because they pledged to our substitute teacher tier and requested Les Mis, and here we are. Obviously, this is an incredibly influential piece of literature, unlike Art of the Deal, and is widely considered to be one of the greatest novels of the 19th century, and is another French book that got turned into a musical that will probably never die. Are we still talking about Art of the Deal? Yes. So that's a thing. RJ, did you ever... I don't even know why I'm asking this. RJ, did you ever read Les Mis in school? Hell no. (laughs) I did read the... I always forget what we call these. But you know, the books that had the picture on every other page for kids. They they took novels, they shorted them, and they added pictures on every other page. I read that version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. (laughs) Okay, but that's not what we're reading today. Oh, it's at least related. (laughs) I know of Victor Hugo. I read a book. I read a different book. I read a children's picture book version of a different book by Victor Hugo. Hey, it's also based in France. You could have at least been like, no, but we watched Les Mis a month ago. That's at least the same. <laughs> <laughs> Even Probby's like, what the fuck? Hey, man? hey, oh, he has takes on the musical. Probby. What do you think of Les Mis? What are your thoughts on the Parisian sewer system, Pravi? No. <laughs> That's like, it. He came, you. he got his one thought. No, then he's done. So, uh, in answer to your question that you didn't ask, no, I didn't either. Um, in college, when I was like 
20, I think. I got kind of like a bug up my ass. Whoa, some... did you go to the ER? No. You should. Yeah, no. Nah. You know what it up there. <laughs> Normally when I'm reading for pleasure, I, I just kind of read, you know, trash. But uh, I was feeling very superior. I, I was like, you know, I just got done reading the entire Divine Comedy. Like, I'm so cultured. Never mind that I, I never would have fucking read it if it hadn't been assigned to me. So I decided that summer that I was going to read, like, some classic literature. I was going to feed my brain. I was going to read Les Mis. I think I got about 100 pages in, and I was just like, this was a mistake. Why did I choose to do this? I'm going to go read Scott Pilgrim instead. And I did. Which, and I think everyone would agree with me on this, is basically the Canadian version of Les Mis. <laughs> and I've been terrified of it ever since. But before we learn all about Prisoner 24601, we gotta get the 411 on one of classic literature's favorite Frenchmen, Victor Hugo. It's a really good joke. Very proud of it. RJ. Victor Marie Hugo was born February 26th, 1802, and died May 22nd, 1885. February 26th is for Pete's Sakes Day, Inconvenience Yourself Day, National Bacon Day. You're fucking kidding me. <laughs> and of course, World Pistachio Day. Inconvenience Yourself Day? <laughs> yeah. Uh, May 22nd, on the other hand, a lot more serious. Harvey Milk Day, National Maritime Day, and International Day for Biological Diversity. I know everyone is wondering, what does Victor Hugo think about biological diversity? Uh, Victor Hugo lets you know what he thinks about literally everything yeah. in this fucking book. Don't worry. So let's learn about him and see if we can figure it out. I can't wait until you're over this and you've moved on to your next gimmick. Megan, there's a for Pete's sakes day. What does that even mean? Today you go for Pete's sakes. Victor Marie, also known by me as VM, although he referred to himself as VH. I can't quite figure out why, was born in St. Quentin. Not San Quentin, but it was still a hard-knock life in Besançon, which is in eastern France, because it was only a decade or so after the revolution, and things were still kind of in this mode of unrest. VM was the youngest son of Joseph Leopold Sigisbert Hugo and Sophie Trebuchet. Good name. That is a fucking baller name, Sophie Trebuchet. Yeah. That fucking rips. Daddy Hugo was a general in the Napoleonic army. Mommy Hugo was a painter and a homemaker. Going back to that revolution thing for a second, you know, people rising up and yelling things like off with their heads. There being people eating cake. Kicked off 13 years before VM was born. Daddy Hugo became a general in the Napoleonic army after joining the revolution when he was a mere 14. Let you know where his mind was at, which was, get rid of that monarchy. Mommy Hugo was initially a rioter looking to overturn some shit, but then at one of the riots she saw a childhood friend and her friend's two daughters get executed, which turned her into a loyal royalist. Say that three times fast. Loyal royalist, loyal royalist, loyal royalist. I guess. Yeah, scrub. But then the two met each other. Mommy Hugo saw Daddy Hugo in uniform. Well, as they say, the rest was history. Even though she stayed an ardent royalist and continued to support the deposed monarchy the rest of her life. That is a confusing marriage. Another big difference between the two was that Daddy Hugo was an atheist and Mommy Hugo was a devout Catholic. You really wonder what these two people talked about. Was, was there no talking? Was it just all fucking? Oh, uh, we'll get to that soon. 
VM's religious views were initially heavily influenced by his mother before changing later in life. As a boy through his young adulthood, VM identified as Catholic and professed respect for the church's hierarchy and authority. But over time, his religiosity waned and he became a non-practicing Catholic and increasingly expressed anti-Catholic and anti-clerical views. Towards the end of his life, he was asked, did he identify as Catholic? And he said, no, I'm a free thinker. He felt the church was indifferent to the plight of the working class, and maybe he was also pissed that a good bit of his work wound up on the church's list of banned books. Specifically, Hugo counted 740 attacks on Les Miserables in the Catholic press. Despite his lapse in Catholicism, he continued to believe in a life after death and prayed every single morning and night. But let's time travel from the end of his life back to the beginning of his life, all the way back to his creation. You see, this was a topic Daddy Hugo was happy to tell his son all about. Um. Daddy Hugo told VM that he was likely the result of a hot and steamy sexy time on top of the VO's mountains. These mountains are about three quarters of a mile high. And Daddy told VM later in life, quote, This elevated origin seems to have had effects on you so that your muse is now continually sublime. Um. There you have it, folks. The higher you plant the seed, the better the tree. Or something. <laughs> Holy shit. You know, son, I ever tell you I fucked your mom on top of that mountain? It's why you're such a smart one. You're so sublime. <laughs> Better thank us. VM deduced from all the information presented by his father on this topic. And what a wealth of it there was. Which may have been a bit TMI, IDK, that he was likely conceived on June 24th, 1801. 24601. Oh my god. Hmm. <laughs> Holy shit. Hmm. I wonder if that, num that number might play into things later on in this episode. Victor, what the fuck, man? He wants everyone to know when daddy laid that pipe. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I mean, I feel this sets the tone for this whole family. <laughs> so. After being conceived and born as one does, uh, VM was moved around quite a bit because daddy was being moved around to meet his military duties. Mommy had enough of the moving and took the kids and moved to Paris when VM was just one. While in Paris, she began seeing General Victor Fanot de la Horie. I guess she had a thing for men in uniform. But not only was he a pretty face in a uniform, but he was also VM's godfather who had been a comrade of Daddy Hugo during the campaign in Vendee. Ooh. Now that's a spicy meatball. <laughs> sure. The entire family did get back together in 1807 when VM was four. Upon their reconciliation, Mommy found out Daddy had been seeing someone on the side too. I'm beginning to understand their relationship a bit more. Maybe. Horny? <laughs> I don't know. This is all turning into a Jerry Springer episode. This familial reunion did not last very long as Daddy was sent to Spain to fight the Peninsular War a year later. There were a lot of wars. This is the war that would eventually resolve with Napoleon living on a wee little island. But that's boring. Let's talk more about Mommy Hugo and the children's. So they went back to Paris and they moved into an old covenant, which was an isolated mansion along the Seine. In the back of the mansion was a chapel. And inside the chapel, would you believe it, was one Victor Fanot de la Horie. <laughs> hiding. What a coincidence. Hiding as a fugitive from the law. What are the odds? Lahori was hiding because he was caught trying to bring the military down from the inside. It was sentenced to death. He escaped and now lived in the chapel and became the dad to VM and gang that they never really had. 
And he continued to lay pipe in Mama Hugo. Ha! Huh. This lasted for three years, until 1811 when VM was nine, and like everything else, it was fleeting. Daddy Hugo had the family join him in Spain. The children were enrolled in school in Madrid. Mommy and Daddy Hugo realized they still did not like each other, and she went back to Paris, and the two officially split this time, although they didn't really divorce. But the uh, kids remained behind with Dad. <laughs> mommy was finally Why? <laughs> Mommy was finally free to consummate her, relish, her relationship with Lahore openly, but too bad his days on the run ended when he was caught and executed. Potentially, Daddy Hugo wants someone in on a tip. Oh. Too bad, so sad. Rough. Daddy Hugo got tired of having the kids around, so he sent them off to a prestigious boarding school where the kids stayed for three years. While at the boarding school, VM wrote in his diary, quote, I shall be Chateaubriand or nothing. Chateaubriand, of course, is a filet mignon roast. The best of the best. This was VM's way of telling himself he would be the best little steak he could be. A nice, <laughs> meaty boy. Although some historians take the position that he was actually referring to Francois-René de Chateaubriand, who was a French writer, specifically a romantic, a politician, a diplomat, and a historian who had a notable influence on French literature of the 19th century. But I know VM was really thinking about the steak. Who wouldn't want to be a nice, meaty little steak boy? That version's kind of more adorable in a yeah, weird no. way. I shall be Chateaubriand. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> In 1817, when he was 15, VM decided to try to become the very best, like no one ever was. Only a steak could be the most dangerous Pokemon of all. And he wrote a poem for a competition run okay, by... that just made me feel like I was having a fucking stroke, but okay. Aren't we all? <laughs> and he wrote a poem for the competition run by the French Academy. He won an honorable mention, but more notable, no one believed he could only be 15 based on his writing skill. He was good. Go Vicky. VM. Marie. You're not the boss of me. He then made the ultimate power move. He moved in with mom when he was 16 and began law school. What if Doogie Hauser, but lawyer? I mean, that was not super out of the ordinary around that time. I'd watch it. Based on what I was reading anyway. Especially if he was a little steak. <laughs> You're really not letting go of that one, huh? VM and his brothers began publishing a literature periodical when he was 17. VM reunited with his childhood friend, Adele Fouché, at the same time, VM decided that this was the woman he loved. He just never put all the pieces together. He wrote her 200 love letters. You know, the 19th century version of sexting, and it worked. The two became engaged, much to the chagrin of Mama Hugo, who summarily died, likely of unrelated reasons. But you never know with this family. VM married Adele next year. He was 20. This was the same time that Hugo began publishing novels and books of poetry. Over the next 18 years, he would publish two novels and five books of poetry, which cemented his reputation as one of the greatest lyric poets of his time, putting him right up there with Steakman Chateaubriand. So VM was no longer a wee aspiring meatling, but a steak of one's own. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, so, I just wonder why I stick with it. Much like his hero, he also turned to politics and became a bit of a firebrand, but more on that later. His first collection of poetry, published when he was newly married to 20, caught the eye of King Louis XVIII, the king who was exiled during the revolution, but now was back, and VM received a royal pension to support him in his writing. His first notable work of fiction was published in 1829, without his name on it, The Last Day of a Condemned Man is about a murderer who was sent to the guillotine for his crimes. 
During the story, he meets a man who is in jail for stealing a loaf of bread. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, Hugo wrote the story after seeing executions take place and deciding he really wished France would abolish the death penalty. And this being a hot issue, he didn't want to attach his name to the tale yet. He would do so three years later. Albert Camus, Charles Dickens, and Fyodor Dostoevsky say this story had a profound effect on them and their writing. Later in life, Hugo said this tale would be the precursor to Les Mis. Following up the success, Hugo became the poster boy of the Romantic literary movement with his plays Cromwell in 1827 and Hernani in 1830. Hernani, it is said by critics, is the play that announced the arrival of French Romanticism, and it was greeted with several nights of rioting as romantics and traditionalists clashed over the play's deliberate disregard for neoclassical rules. Okay. Yes, it literally created a riot in the theater as romantics and classicists clashed over VM's techniques. Oh, do you mean like clashed like... Fought. Oh, like... Oh, there well, was like a theater nerd war. Oh, well, when you say... Riot. When you say, when you say clashed, you picture, you know, that they wrote reviews arguing with each other, not that they like literally beat the shit out of yeah, each other. Yeah, there were riots. That's, Several nights of riots. That kicks ass. VM pissed off traditionalists by writing a play in which the hero does not live by the rules of society. He was a bad boy who worked outside of the law in a story that gasped moved from one location to another, and if all that wasn't bad enough, the dialogue broke from the rhyming couplet tradition. <gasps> this was all some real sick shit, which is why it led to such a reaction in the audience, which included multiple brawls. That's so fucking right. Like, imagine, like, you're sitting down for a play, and it's like, <gasps> they're not speaking in rhyme, and then you just have to start punching the person next to you because you can't fucking handle it. In all seriousness, <laughs> critics say that while this sounds ridiculous today, what VM did was seen as being quite dangerous as the rules of French neoclassicism were related to artistic and social order, and he was breaking it all down. Fuck yeah. Society, man. Ironically, <laughs> even though VM's plays received attention and were considered good and pivotal for the movement, his plays are no longer performed, even though most people know him for Les Mis, which is generally thought of as a theater play nowadays and not so much as a novel. That's so fucking wild because you hear about like, I mean, usually I guess it's like horror movies now where it's like, it will shock you because it's like, oh, it's so fucked up. It's so against, you know, the decency of society that it's going to give you like such an intense reaction. But I've definitely never seen a horror movie that was fucked up enough that people just started freaking out and smacking each other in the theater. So I love that like it, the play, it's like, the dialogue, the characters are moving from one place to another. Too I, much. Ha I have to start punching. This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you sick fucks. It's so good. I love it. The only time I was ever in a movie theater where a fight broke out was the original Batman movie. I remember this as a child. Wait, like the 1989 one? Yeah. <laughs> because like people like snuck into the theater. So there were more people in the theater than there were seats. Like people were literally sitting in the aisles. Right. And people were like throwing down, man. Like, oh, show me your fucking ticket. I want to sit down. <laughs> So it really didn't have anything to do with the No, like not, not the with the movie itself, uh, no. It wasn't like, we live in a society. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ushers weren't doing their job. So from there, VM published The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1831 at the age of 29. 
This was quickly translated into other languages across Europe, including into Disney, the most profitable language of all. <laughs> Before the novel was published, the Cathedral of Notre Dame was in shambles. With the publication, the city of Paris was basically shamed into restoring the cathedral, which began attracting thousands of tourists who read the tale. VM was riding high, but he could not get into the Académie Française, the French Academy, which is considered the preeminent French council for matters pertaining to the French language. The Academy was very hoity-toity, and some of the members did not like VM's hot takes. They especially disliked the Romantic Revolution that VM personified. After three unsuccessful attempts, VM finally got into the Academy. You fight the system, and then you become the system, and maybe try to bring it down from the inside, eh? But VM had higher hopes. He had filet mignon dreams. When he was 36 in 1848, he ran for and won an election for a seat in the National Assembly of the Second Republic as a conservative. He did break with his party a year later when he gave speeches calling for the end of misery and poverty, as well as for universal suffrage and free education for all children. He also continued to advocate for abolishing the death penalty, which made him renowned internationally. A break with misery and poverty. <laughs> we should get rid of this. But that's, that's part of our core party values. <laughs> How can we appreciate not being in misery and poverty unless there's people for us to look at who are miserable and impoverished? <laughs> this political thing did not work out very well as Napoleon III seized complete power in 1851 and basically destroyed the parliament. VM openly declared Napoleon III a traitor to France and fled the country. He would remain in exile for 19 years with his family until 1870. While in exile, Hugo published a focus of today's episode, Wait, Miserable, among other works. During this period, he also wrote and spoke about colonialism. His thoughts on the topic changed a bit over time, but like most of his contemporaries, VM largely justified colonialism in terms of a civilizing mission and putting an end to the slave trade. In a political speech, VM said that the seas divided, quote, ultimate civilization and utter barbarism, adding, quote, God offers Africa to Europe, take it, in order to civilize its indigenous inhabitants. <sighs> this is likely why, at least in part, he remained silent about the atrocities that occurred in Algeria by the French army, which he knew about based on his diaries, but never spoke about publicly. However, in Les Mis, VM wrote, quote, Algeria too harshly conquered, and as in the case of India by the English, with more barbarism than civilization. After nearly a decade in exile, VM learned that Napoleon III was granting amnesty to all political exiles beginning in 1859. VM declined the offer as it meant he would have to curtail his criticisms of the government. He would remain in exile for another decade. Towards the end of his exile, in a brief period, he suffered a mild stroke. His daughter Adele was interned in an insane asylum. His two sons died, and his wife Adele died in 1868. Fuck. Yeah, tough times. Jesus. VM, who was still banished from France, was unable to attend his wife's funeral because it was in France. <laughs> why, why, why did they do that? <laughs> she, well, she wanted to be buried there because her daughter was buried there, so she was buried next to the daughter. Oh. She died like, young. Ah, okay. So that's fine. Uh, despite their respective affairs, the couple had to live together for nearly 46 years. Oh, they had, they had affairs? Oh, we're going to get to that. Oh. Oh, but yeah, the two of them like had a very open relationship. Ah. The woman VM had been in a relationship with on the side during his marriage was Juliet Drouet. The two of them were together since 1833, also known as the last 35 years of his marriage to Adele. 
Dang. Like, it really wasn't a secret or anything. If it works, it works. He never did marry Juliet, even after Adele died. She was committed, though, um, as she went into exile with him and his family. He got her a house down the block. (laughs) Um, I see. And she wrote nearly 20,000 letters in which she expressed her passion for or vented her jealousy on her womanizing victor. Ha. In 1870, Napoleon III fell from power and the Third Republic was proclaimed and VM finally returned to France, where he was promptly elected to the National Assembly and the Senate and was welcomed back as a hero. Things did not stay good for long as the siege of Paris began on September 19, 1870 and lasted almost five months. As the siege ended, the country hailed him as a national hero. He was confident that he would be offered the dictatorship as shown by notes that he kept in his diary at the time. Quote, dictatorship is a crime. This is a crime I'm going to commit. Oh my God. (laughs) Because he felt he just had to assume the responsibility. Victor, dude. You know, I don't really (laughs) want to have to take over, but it's good for the people. Holy shit, man. Despite his own thoughts and despite his popularity, VM actually lost his bid for re-election to the National Assembly in 1872. No dictatorship for him. Womp womp. He misread the room just a tad. Just a, just a hair. Despite the setback, he remained a statesman who helped shape the Third Republic and democracy in France. All his life, he remained a defender of liberty, equality, and fraternity, as well as a champion of French culture. In 1877, age 75, he wrote, quote, I am not one of these sweet-tempered old men. I am still exasperated and violent. I shout and I feel indignant and I cry. Woe to anyone who harms France. I do declare I will die a fanatic patriot. Another big thing old VM was passionate about was women. (laughs) And he gave free reign to his little Hugo until a few weeks before his death. He was not all that discerning either, as he sought out a wide variety of women. He was not particular about age, nor their station in life. Be they courtesans, actresses, prostitutes, admirers, servants, revolutionaries? Didn't matter. Being a graphomanic, basically someone who loves writing down like every detail of everything, he systematically kept reports on all his casual affairs using his own code. Oh boy. It was basically, Dear Diary, Today I met up with Marsha. We made out. She showed me her boobs. And then... We fucked. You're not even going to try to do that in a French accent, huh? No. (laughs) Like, really, he would use the Latin, Spanish, and French abbreviations as a sort of code to keep track of his conquest. More mild ideas like kisses and cuddles were there, but he also kept tracks of things like breast and pubic hair. Oh. My favorite, though, is he would refer to women's Swisses because Switzerland was known for chocolate. So why not call them boobies, the makers of milk? Swisses. Bless you, VM. No, men have no rights. Also, I like that he would add TN in his diary. It meant that he got a woman totally naked in front of him. Simplicity. Totally nude. (laughs) (laughs) I saw it all this day. No matter how fucking old dudes get, they are always 13. They never progress past 13. When he turned 80, France threw a huge birthday party for him. The celebrations began on June 25th, 1881, when Hugo was presented with a traditional gift for sovereigns and continued through June 27th, when one of the largest parades in French history was held. The paraders marched for six hours past Hugo as he sat at the window of his house. The parade had over 3 million people take part. Wow. Yeah. 
On June 28th, the city of Paris changed the name of the Avenue de Iaulu, which is what he lived on, to Avenue Victor Hugo. Letters addressed to him uh, going forward were then labeled to Mr. Victor Hugo in his avenue, Paris. Now that's way better than getting a postage stamp. That's true. That's big. Yeah. Two days before dying, he left the note with these last words. To love is to act. I don't know if he was fucking. (laughs) Kind of sounds like he was fucking. On May 20th, 1885, it was reported that the illustrious patient was fully conscious and aware that there was no hope for him. It was reported that at one point in the night, he had whispered, In me, it is the battle between day and night. T.N. (laughs) Okay, I added that last part, but who knows? Maybe the nurse showed him the goods. (laughs) Hugo's death uh, from pneumonia was on May 22nd, 1885, at the age of 83. The entirety of France mourned. Although he had requested a pauper's funeral, he was awarded a state funeral. More than two million people joined the funeral procession. His will comprised of a mere five sentences. I leave 50,000 francs to the poor. I wish to be buried in their hearse. I refuse funeral oriations from all churches. I demand a prayer to all souls. I believe in God. In conclusion, to bring us back to the start of this tale, Victor Hugo's take on biological diversity is likely varied and plenty. Tien, show him the Swiss. The end. God. Uh, he likes that biological diversity. Yeah, Let me tell you I what. Knew that was coming. He took a lot of notes. Oh, God, of course he fucking did. Hey, everybody, it's Megan. Apologize if I sound just sort of generally bad. My allergies have spent the day telling my face to just fuck right off to hell. So I'll make this quick for both of our sakes. First off, thank you to all the wonderful people who wished me a happy birthday on social media. It made me feel very nice. Especially considering that it was just kind of like a weird, stressful day for a bunch of reasons. So it was just really nice, and I really appreciated it. So thank you, everybody. And of course, like always, this episode is... Oh, this episode specifically is brought to you by Tarragon, our Patreon substitute teacher for the day. But it is also brought to you in part by our patrons in general, who help support the show, and especially this year, have been a huge part of helping us be able to keep bringing the show to you during just uh financial stuff and as i say every episode our patrons are wonderful amazing and just the absolute fucking best (laughs) including our newest patrons kale like the delicious leafy green i would assume but they're probably not a vegetable i don't know i shouldn't be making assumptions who knows what they are i don't know their life and Uniquitous, also on Twitter, at te underscore Nate. Uh, that's letter N number eight. So thank you to Kale and Uniquitous. And if you would like to help support us, you can go to patreon.com slash where you can pledge and get bonus content, vote on episodes we do next, get stickers, t-shirts, posters, and 
if you, if you pay enough, you can make us read Les Mis. Well, I mean, not like, because we're, do I guess you, you could make us read Les Mis again if you wanted to. For now, just enjoy it for, for the first time, for the once time. I'm going to go take allergy medication. Les Miserables, as it is, miserable. So I have a lot of really intense bitching I'm about to do. So before that, I do just want to read the preface in its entirety because it is raw as hell. Quote, So as long as there shall exist, by virtue of law and custom, decrees of damnation pronounced by society, artificially creating hells amid the civilization of Earth, and adding the element of human fate to divine destiny, so long as the three great problems of the century, the degradation of man through pauperism, the corruption of woman through hunger, the crippling of children through lack of light, are unsolved, so long as social asphyxia is possible in any part of the world, in other words, and with a still wider significance, so long as ignorance and poverty exist on earth, books of the nature of Les Miserables cannot fail to be of use. Kindling. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Victor Hugo said, eat the rich, baby. Anyway, if you're not familiar with the book and your main point of reference for the story is the musical, you might be like, Megan, why have you been such a fraidy bitch about Les Mis? Megan, why have you been such a fraidy bitch about Les Mis? Well, I'll tell you. Remember how long ago I whined about Moby Dick being super long with the added bonus of the non-plot related whaling chapters? Sure. Well, Victor Hugo looked at that shit and went, you're playing a baby game for babies, and 11 years later wrote a book that's almost three fucking times as long, at roughly 1,500 pages. Possibly more, depending on the translation. I don't know. I read it on Project Gutenberg, because I don't have money, which was also very difficult. And di digressions? You want to talk digressions? Wikipedia estimates that Hugo spends at least a quarter of the book, 25% of over a thousand pages, just shooting the shit about stuff that is in no way related to the plot. Hey, here's stuff that's going on through my mind right now. <laughs> the famous one that everybody jokes about is when he halts everything to spend, oh, you know, 15,000 words on... Look, I need to explain the sewers of Paris to you and how wildly fucked they are and my proposal on how to fix them. Do they got gators <laughs> in them sewers? No, oh. mostly just shit. But also, he spends 19 chapters being like, hey, I know I was telling you a story, but how about that Battle of Waterloo, right? Yeah. Wild. But perhaps... Most upsettingly, and most relevant to us at the moment, is the opening of the novel. RJ, how do you think the book starts? With a poor lady. Wrong. With a poor man. Wrong. Moses. Why? He's Moses. You're killing me. <laughs> Megan, he took a piece of wood and turned right, it into a snake. Right, no. You know what? No. I've seen the movie. Victor Hugo did enough fucking psychic damage to me already. I don't need it from you too. How do you think the book starts, RJ? TN. No, it doesn't start with total nudity either. It starts with the life and times of a bishop named Myril, Mariel, and the admission from Hugo that, and I quote, 
This detail has no connection whatever with the real substance of what we are about to relate, after which he proceeds to go on for 14 fucking chapters <laughs> to essentially say, hey, this bishop was a pretty cool dude who liked to help out the poor. Yeah, what a good guy. Someone totaled up the word count because they're probably as insane as Victor Hugo. And just for like a fun mental comparison, Hugo spends roughly half the length of The Great Gatsby introducing his book by telling us about a dude who literally exists to give Jean Valjean, yeah, you know, one of the main characters, Jean Valjean, yeah, he doesn't show up until book two, as it turns out. Yeah, he gives old JVJ a place to sleep when, when no one else will, because he's a gross, scary ex-convict, and no inns in the small town he's wandered into will take him. But this bishop, he's a good dude. How do we know? Well, we've been told so for 14 fucking chapters, my god. <sighs> what a good guy. So yeah, in order to make it through this episode in less than four goddamn hours, we're gonna speed run Les Miserables. Are you ready, motherfuckers? Let's do it. Let's go! So, Faljon just got out of prison where he was for 19 years. What do you think he was in prison for, RJ? I know what he was in prison for. I saw the movie. Yeah, well, what was it? Tell the people. Poke the Pillsbury Dome Man in the tummy. Yep. Stole a loaf of bread. <laughs> he stole a loaf of bread. He pinched a bit of Pillsbury, he, if you know what I mean. He sure did. And that, that was five years, though. The other 14 years of prison was because he kept trying to escape, and they kept adding years on. You'd think after the first couple times, he'd realize it was not very good at it, and, like, the risk-reward thing was not, like, working out in his favor. You know, some countries, they don't punish you for trying to escape. Because, like, <laughs> you're naturally going to try to escape. You would think. Yeah? Well, France's prison system is kind of balls, as, as we will discover. Yeah, um, well. So, prison has turned him into a desperate man, willing to take advantage of people's kindness. Case in point. Bishop goes to sleep. Valjean sneaks out of bed, steals the bishop's fancy silverware, fucks off. He gets caught by the police, though, because clearly he's a shitty thief and he's just bad at being a criminal, as evidenced. And they bring him back to the bishop, who's like, nah, I gave those to him. We're bros. It's cool. And the cops are like, um, okay. And they leave. And the bishop's like, a cab. Fuck cops. Take that silver. Use it to be a better person or whatever. And Valjean is, is so grateful, and he's falling over himself, and he's like, I will. And then the first thing he does is accidentally make a small boy cry, because he thinks Valjean is trying to rob him for no clear reason. So he's off to a good start. Then two years later, we get nine chapters that basically amount to, hey, meet Fantine, Fantine, Fanta, meet Fanta. She's a teenager. Fanta, Fanta. <laughs> She's a teenager who gets dumped by her shitty boyfriend who's like 10 years older than her through a note. It's a 19th century text breakup. Also, she's pregnant with the musical's mascot. On to book four. Fanta has a kid. Her name's Cassette. She can't get work anywhere because of the scandal of being an unwed mother. So one day she sees this innkeeper woman with two daughters and is like, Hey, you have kids. They look reasonably happy and not dead. You want mine? I'll pay you. Pay me? <laughs> And she just gives her kid to this couple named the Thenardiers. Thenardiers? Yeah, that sounds right. And she literally just met to look after while she gets a job. Like, no vetting. 
No asking around. She just instantly trusts them and gives them her money and her only child with absolutely no way to know they won't murder her kid the second she leaves. She has no way to check up on them. It's not like a friend is like, hey, like I see you're in like dire straits. I know this couple that like, you can leave your kids with them. She just is like, hey, you. You they, got kids. <laughs> they own a business. They got kids that are alive. I mean, you're checking off all the boxes. Well, they don't murder Cassette, I guess. But they and their two daughters, uh, Eponine and Azelma, Azuma, Zazela, they do make her do hard labor all day and night at the age of like three. She's got like a, a pacifier in one hand and a mop and a bucket in the other. Uh, and everyone in town calls her the Lark because she's so small and bird-like because she's so skinny because they don't feed her. So that's kind of fucked up. High metabolism. <laughs> Child services did not exist yet, so we just give the children funny nicknames instead. Fantine, meanwhile, goes back to her hometown, Mont montreal sur where business is luckily a booming thanks to this dude named Père Madeline. <laughs> oui. You're not interested in uh, what they're, they're calling him there? No. It's translated as Father Madeline. There you go. Yeah, we could just call him... Daddy. Old Daddy Mads. Anyway, Big Papa M invented a cheap way to manufacture jewelry, turning M Sir M into a boomtown. And everybody loves him, even if no one knows where he came from or the specifics of who he is or why he was wearing rags when he first came to town. He's Jean Valjean. He's fucking Jean Valjean, but whatever. Things are obviously pretty great since he turned his life around. Or are they? Oh... Enter Javert. Javert's a dickhead cop who clearly doesn't have enough crime to solve because he has enough free time to spend staring at Daddy Maddie like, hmm, why am I obsessed with this guy's face? I can't stop looking at it. It reminds me of something. Like justice. Whoa. Then one day, Papa Valjean lifts a horse cart off a dude to save his life and Javert is there and he's like... Oh my gosh, there's only one man I know with the rippling muscle mass to achieve such a sick lift. The criminal Jean Valjean, wanted for breaking parole and making a small boy cry several years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, for real, though. That's the thing that happens. <laughs> He's still wanted for breaking parole and for making a kid cry. <laughs> Shouldn't do that. And if you just left it there, like just that, it would already be wildly gay. Like, I'm sorry, but that's true. Like, yes, how could I forget Prisoner 24601 and his sick pecs? <laughs> like, what a weird thing to remember. Check him out. Also, I'm still not over the Prisoner 24601 thing. Holy shit. Plant those seeds. Hi, parents. Oh, God. So yeah, just even that alone is, is weird. But then also, you know, he obsessively chases him for like decades or something. And well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but you know, I'm just saying. It ain't hetero. Moving on. Fantine gets a job working at Daddy Valjean's factory, but then immediately loses it because people find out that she has a kid and that's bad for shame. People suck, man. So Fantine falls down a horrible spiral of bad shit. And she gets the Burke, because, you know, of course she does. And also she sells increasingly more personal things to get money to send to the Thénardiers, uh, so they don't throw Cassette out into the, the street. Uh, she sells her hair and her teeth, which, why is that something anyone even wants? RJ, what are they doing with her teeth? Put it inside of baby rattles. How do you think those rattle, Meg? <laughs> They're filled teeth? with teeth. 
Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why is that the thing that you jump to? Don't about jump it to. I mean, that's fact. No. Yeah, it's full of baby teeth. I don't like it. Yeah. She she sells her teeth. And, and I mean, in the tooth fairy. Yeah. yeah. She hungry. I don't like that. Um, yeah. And finally, she takes up prostitution. Except some asshole tries to get handsy with her right in the street, so she attacks him and, Oh, look, here comes Javert, suddenly around to do his job and take the dangerous prostitute to jail. Luckily, Daddy Valjean is also there to be like, Hey, fuck off and let her go. Which he can do, because he's the mayor. Did I mention that he's the mayor? He's the mayor. Also, as an aside, uh, this is taken from real life. Hugo apparently saved a prostitute from being arrested for assault. For realsies. A cab. Anyway, Javert fucks off and Fantine spits on Valjean because he also, you know, let her get fired for an absolutely dumb shit reason. So, you know, valid response. But he's like, I'm gonna make it up to you. Daddy Maddie Valjean is here to take care of you and your daughter forever. And Fantine is so happy she dies. <laughs> Women, am I right? What? <laughs> yeah. Dear diary, this one died on me. Ew, no. Sad face. No. Oh. I mean, it's like three days later, but whatever, you get the idea. R.I.P. Fontaine, you may be dead, but someone's rocking around with your teeth. And that's a kind of immortality, I guess. Meanwhile, Vajan sends the Thenardiers a bunch of money and is like, yo, I'm coming to get that kid. Like, oh, wait, how many teeth she got left at this point? That's important. I don't want to pick up no kid with no teeth. She, she's she a, ain't worth nothing. She's only got the baby teeth. She will get more teeth. Oh, that's good. Yeah, she's got teeth on back order. Yeah, th those are worth their weight in gold. Exactly. But first, there's some bullshit shenanigans where Javert wrote to Paris like, Hey, I found Jean Valjean. And Paris wrote back, Oh, no, we have Jean Valjean. And we're going to execute him. So he came to Valjean's house like, I can't believe I suspected you. Punish me, daddy. Hard. <laughs> and uh, real Valjean has to have a crisis of faith over... Whether you should let fake Valjean die, because that would solve a lot of problems, but no, he doesn't, because he's a good person. He runs to the trial, goes, Sup, don't kill this guy, I'm the real Valjean, okay, goodbye. Runs out, is arrested by Javert, escapes prison, manages to do it semi-successfully this time, and fucks off towards Paris. Insert 19 chapters on the Battle of Waterloo here. Yeah. <laughs> What do you think of the strategy Napoleon undertook, Meg? At the end of it, though, I guess there's something about Thenardier, that, that asshole innkeeper currently abusing Fantine's daughter, accidentally saving a dude named Pontmercy on the battlefield, while in reality he was attempting to loot what he thought was a corpse. This will be a thing later. 21,000 words. Yes, there are contextual reasons that Waterloo occupies such a huge fucking chunk of the text. I don't care. Don't you dare at me. Carrying on. Valjean is captured. Again. Because he sucks. Oh my god. He's put on a boat and he goes overboard and they're like, well, I guess he drowned and is dead. But you know Javert is out there somewhere like, he's alive. I feel it. In my balls. In town, Cassette is being abused on Christmas Eve and made to go get water in the woods in the middle of the night, and she wants a doll and also maybe some shoes. Mrs. Thenardier is like, ho, 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 no, no. And then a mysterious man in a yellow coat meets her in the woods. The man in the yellow hat. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, oh, no, sorry, I was looking for a monkey. His name is George, and he's a curious one. 
And then another man in a different yellow coat shows up, and it's... The man with the yellow teeth. What? What's the one on True Detective? Oh. The yellow um, king. The, yeah, the pale? The pale king. king. Whatever. <laughs> is, you know, is, is Daddy Maddie Jean Valjean. Whoa! Hugh Jackman. <laughs> yes. It's huge, it's huge jacked man. <laughs> Eight six seven five three zero nine. Yes. Yeah. His prisoner, prisoner eight six seven five three zero nine. The huge jack. I got man. it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> For a good time, prisoner two six seven five zero one. And he's uh he's stoked that the first downtrodden orphan he stumbles over in the woods just happens to be the one he was looking for. And has teeth. And has teeth. He takes her back home, and he pays the Thenardiers an obscene amount of money for her, and with Valjean presumed dead, off they go to Paris to live happily in an apartment that Hugo devotes a whole chapter to telling us how ugly it is. Except... Except... Except remember when I said that Javert would never believe Valjean was dead re-feeling in his balls? Not really. That was a while ago. That was like five seconds ago. (laughs) Yeah, so he remembered that thing about... Fantine and her daughter, he found the Thenardiers, he somehow finds their apartment, and then he disguises himself as a beggar to spy on them. Isn't he just a normal cop? Doesn't he have other stuff to do? No. (laughs) Like, no normal job shit that doesn't let him just fuck off whenever he wants to go chase down his presumed dead self-proclaimed nemesis? He's gonna get to the bottom of the case no matter what he has to do. Yeah, this is totally normal, not obsessively horny behavior at all. Anyway, Valjean recognizes him, uh, because I like to imagine this is just like normal Javert, but he has like a sack wrapped around his shoulders and like decided that was a disguise. And he and Cassette run away and hide in a convent that Hugo describes for 11 chapters, followed by eight more chapters on just, you know, convents as a concept. Fuck. The takeaway. They're bad because they're strict. There you go. I did it in five fucking words. There you go. Then there's a whole weird shenanigan involving Valjean having to get buried alive so the nuns don't know he snuck in. But it's fine. Don't worry about it. The guy he saved from getting crushed by the horse cart works there. They get him out. He gets a job as a gardener. He and Cassette live there now. Cassette is stoked to not be a child slave anymore. She's a track now. Yes, look at that. She's moving up in the world. Soon she'll be tape deck. (laughs) One day she might even be a CD. Whoa. (laughs) This next section is named Marius. What do you think it starts with, RJ? You're asking what's it start with? Yeah, like Marius, like the character Marius. You think it starts with an introduction to the character Marius? I don't even know how it's spelled. Oh, no. It's your question. No. (laughs) A nice sandwich. No. That's how I would open it. Ah, no. Why, 12 chapters on why Paris street urchins are the best street urchins, of course. Obviously. Obviously. Then we learn that eight or nine years have passed, and we meet, not Marius, but Gavroche, a Parisian street kid who does have a family, but his family hates him. Basically booted him out of the house. And when he does go see his family, living across the hall from them is actually Marius. Marius Pontmercy. Marius's backstory is very long and involved. Aren't they always? Ah, uh, yeah. Short version. His granddad has a lot of money and fucking sucks and makes Marius live with him and never see his dad. Also, his dad was an officer in Napoleon's army. 
He's the guy who Thenardier tried to loot on the battlefield. Anyway, Marius grows up never knowing his dad. His dad dies and leaves him a letter that he was never supposed to see, but he sees it. And it says, hey, go find Thenardier. He saved my life. And even though Thenardier is a con man and a bastard, long story short, Marius finds out his dad was a war hero, learns all about the French Revolution, calls his grandfather a bourgeois pig, and runs away to live free and penniless. It's the gist of it. In fact, Hugo tells us that this year, which is 1830, lots of young people are really into bringing back retro trends. High-waisted pants, synth-pop, the guillotine, etc. 1789 is back in a big way. Marius is part of a group of would-be revolutionaries called the Friends of the ABC, which is a pun, because if you phonetically pronounce it, it's like Friends of the ABC, which is like the French word ABC, which is translated to like via based, or like the, the lowly. The friends of the low. Low. They're led by a guy named Angel... Angel Ross? Angel Ross. Yeah. And full of a bunch of boys that the internet wants to kiss each other. And spoiler alert, they all die. So I'm not terrifically invested in them. Sad. <laughs> There's like eight of them. And they all have cute little character quirks and they all die horrible deaths. Sigh. Anyway, one day Marius notices an old man of about 60 or so walking with a 13 or 14-ish year old girl, and Marius, who is 20, is like, oh, that girl is ugly. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what more do you want? Not a metric you should be applying to a 13-year-old when you're a grown man, but cool. <laughs> they walk the same route as him for like a year, and, uh, after that year, now that she's potentially 15, I guess suddenly Marius is like, oh, she's hot now, and I hate it, and he falls in love with her, and he follows them home like a fucking creep, but the doorman won't let him in, and when he tries to come back another day, they've moved away, and uh, Marius is so sad because he's fallen deeply in love with a 15-year-old he's never exchanged words with, like you do. Like you do. And then Hugo's like, hey, you want to hear about crimes, maybe? No? Okay. How about this wild shit instead? And boy, is it wild shit. Okay, um, I did my best to sum this up, but it's it's a fucking mess. So remember how Marius... You know, oh, yeah, I didn't really explain this. So that family that Marius is living next to, Gavroche's family that hates him? Yeah. They're the Thenardiers. And? That's, that's where they've moved to. Okay. So they're trying to scam him for money, Marius. They're trying to scam a lot of people for money. and uh, As you do. As you do. Uh, yeah, so that's where they live now. And with the two daughters, Eponine and girl whose name you never hear again, fuck her. And uh, other people that they're trying to scam for money is that nice old man and that girl that pervy fucking Marius has a crush on. And yes, that is Daddy Valjean and Cassette. And no... Neither of them recognize Cassette's former guardians, because they're both fucking stupid, I guess. But they recognize Daddy Valjean, and they're like, fuck, I bet we could get more money out of him. He's the guy who paid us a shitload of money for Cassette, and we could probably get her teeth now. She's got those grown-up teeth now. The good teeth. <laughs> yeah. She's got those shitty baby teeth in Ah, uh, bruh. And so Marius hears them saying that they're going to, like, fucking kidnap him and hold them for ransom and shit. 
And he doesn't know who they are. He just hears that the Nardier is like saying that stuff. And so he's like, oh no, my future father-in-law, potentially. Never mind that he still hasn't spoken to them at all. And he runs to the police station to get help. And we all know that only one fucking cop exists in all of France. This is true. <laughs> and it's Javert. <laughs> and uh, Thenardier gets some thugs and they take Valjean hostage. And they try to like get him to write a, a letter to Cassette to get her to like bring money to them so they can take her hostage. But... He escapes and he attacks them with a fucking fireplace poker, which is fucking nuts. And then Javert shows up with more cops and busts them. And Valjean is like, oh no, I can't let him see my face. And he jumps out a window. <laughs> and Marius is like, yep, I did good. I did the good. <laughs> and then we get a lot of history that basically amounts to... People are sick of this monarchy shit, you guys. France keeps having these little mini-revolutions that, like, they don't do much except make everyone want to have another one. Case in point, and Enjolras, Enjolras, I can't get his name, and the, the ABC gang, who are hot and horny for taking down the establishment. But Marius doesn't care about that anymore because he's in love. Aren't we all? Eponine, that was the Thenardier's daughter, remember? I know, me, me neither, barely. Uh, but yeah, she gets out of prison, because reasons, and tells Marius how to find Cassette, because she actually secretly loves Marius and is a glutton for punishment. And then I skip a whole bunch of scenes with characters I never bothered to introduce, where Gavroche steals a wallet to help an old man, blah blah blah. Cassette's also in love with Marius, because she always stared at him when she and Daddy Valjean would walk by him, yada yada yada. Then Marius finds their new house and sneaks into the yard, and they profess their love for each other, and more importantly, they tell each other their fucking names. Jesus. How romantic. People who are young and in love in books are the fucking worst, I swear to God. Then Gavroche helps break his dad out of prison. They almost rob Valjean's house, but Eponine stops them. Meanwhile, Valjean's gonna leave for England and take Cassette with him, so Marius goes to his granddad like, Hey, I know you're a dirty capitalist pig, but I want your blessing to marry a girl so I can keep her from leaving. And his granddad, who apparently has missed him very much and wants desperately to not lose him, says, Hey, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? <laughs> and Marius is like, Granddad, what the fuck? And leaves. And uh, Valjean's also jealous of Marius and how much attention Cassette is giving him, which is gross and weird, but we don't have time to unpack that. <laughs> Either way, too many people are on to him, so it's go time. When Marius goes to meet Cassette, she doesn't show up, and instead Eponine is there, dressed as a boy, and she tells him that his ABC buddies are throwing down a riot and throwing up a barricade in the streets. And then Hugo's like, on that note, here's a history of riots and why they fucking rule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Hugo's just like, fuck them up. <laughs> and little Gavroche absolutely thinks riots rule, and he picks up a gun that doesn't work and finds the ABC guys and is like, hey, can I join your street war? And they're like, all right, tiny child, that sounds chill. And little does he know his sister, disguised as a boy, is only a little off to the side doing the same thing, but not because she wants to throw rocks at shit like Gavroche does, but because she's on the hunt for Marius so she can get that dick. Aren't we all? Who among us hasn't joined a riot in the hopes of getting that dick? 
They build up a barricade, and Enjolras is mad that his friend Grantaire is hammered the whole time. Because he feels it's not really in the spirit of the revolution if you're just fucking blitzed. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's just like, the new recruits, like this small child and that random man who just showed up with a gun are more committed to the cause. And Garrosh is like, that's no random man. It's... 5675301. No. 8675309. You can't just keep saying numbers. Oh, they're different people. No. One more. Deroche. Who? I don't know. Kavrosh is the one talking. Oh, shit. Well, <laughs> they're there. No. It's Javert. Uh, it's Javert. <laughs> I'm Russell Crowe. <laughs> I got a beautiful mind today. Then I fought a tiger and Joaquin Phoenix oh, stabbed okay. me in the No, we're, we're, not, we're not doing his filmography. And then I was a boxer. <laughs> okay, no, no one seems to remember that one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's Javert. He's taking a break from trying to climb up Jean Valjean's asshole to narc on their revolution. They tie him up to kill him, and Gavroche is like, Does this mean I can have his gun? I really want a gun. Aren't I adorable? Marius enters the barricade because, fuck it, he can't find Cassette. Who gives a shit? Let's do a revolution. The French army shows up. They exchange gunshots. Marius does some heroic shit, I guess. But then he almost gets shot, and someone takes a bullet for him and gasp. It's... Javert. No, Javert does not take a bullet for Marius. They tied him up and threw him in the back. <laughs> Damn. Jenny, Jenny, eight, six, seven, Jesus five, three, fucking oh, Christ. Who would take a bullet for Marius? Demarius, his no. brother who's been hiding off screen. Yeah, this whole time just waiting. <laughs> yeah, he was demanding the iron mask. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> Different French writer. Is it though? Yes. Mm. Alexander Dumas is a different man. <laughs> you ever see him in the same room, Meg? It's oh. Eponine. It's Eponine, I hate you. And she's like, I always kind of liked you. And Marius is like, neat. And she gives him a letter from Cassette that she was hiding and she dies. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> R.I.P. Eponine. You took that bullet. You sure did. Like you, a champ. You weren't great, but you also probably could have done better. Anyway, the letter says that Cassette's staying at Whoa. some other... Whoa. Watch what this bitch is going to do for you. Pretty funny. <laughs> uh, Cassette's staying at some other spot in Paris before they leave for England, and now Mary's is like, fuck this shit, I want to live. <laughs> fuck your revolution. And he writes a response to Cassette and makes Gavroche sneak away to deliver it. Valjean intercepts Gavroche before Cassette can get it, though, and is like, I must go to the barricade and see this boy, because reasons, I guess. I don't know. He just does. And so he steals a French soldier's uniform, and he and Gavroche go back to the barricade, and people get in and out of this barricade without very much difficulty. <laughs> people just be wandering in and out. <laughs> Doesn't seem very hard. Once there, Valjean sees Javert conveniently tied up and waiting for someone to remember to stab him. But first, they gotta fight the French army, and they mow down a shitload of them at, at first, but then they start running out of ammo, and Gavroche tries to steal some more off the bodies of the dead soldiers, but he gets shot and killed. R.I.P. Gavroche, you never did get a working gun. Things quickly go downhill from there. The rebellious energy of Paris has turned into kind of a wet fart, and Enjolras is like, well, we're definitely gonna die. It's time for a last stand. But let's absolutely kill Javert first because fuck him. And Valjean's like, hell yeah, I'll do it. I hate that guy. Except. Except. Except he only pretends to shoot him and totally lets him go instead. 
what the fuck, Valjean? What happened to ACAB? And Javert is even like, I'm, I'm still gonna get you, bitch. And he runs away, full of confusing feelings. Showed him! <laughs> then Angelus and Grantaire die holding hands. R.I.P. those two. You did a revolution, I suppose. Kind of. It's okay, though. You'll always have Coffee Shop AU fanfiction. Marius gets shot in the shoulder and passes out, but Valjean, still dressed as a soldier, carries him away to safety. Oh, did I say safety? I meant a sewer. They're in a sewer, which is where we get the rant about the Paris sewer system I mentioned roughly 1,000 years ago. So they both become nasty little sewage boys hiding from the army, and who should they bump into but... Javert. No, not yet. Good guess, though. Jean Valjean. He is Jean Valjean! <laughs> what, is he bumping into the fucking Nega Valjean? <laughs> it's his twin brother. <laughs> it's his twin brother? Du, <laughs> du Jean Valjean? <laughs> yeah, he was wearing the iron mask. God damn. Oh, they bump into the alligator. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the, the Paris alligator, and he eats the both of them, and they Mr. fucking die, oh, and it crap. ends. <laughs> What's the name of the alligator in uh, Happy Gilmore? He ate Chubb's hand. I don't know. Did he have a name? <laughs> Did he not? Yeah, they bump into Albert the alligator. No. Oh, yeah. No, I'm saying they, do, they don't. No. <laughs> I like how you were correcting yeah. me. Like, yeah, they fucking do. Yeah. <laughs> um, swamp thing. Yeah, this swamp thing comes out. And he's like, I'll take it from here, Jean Valjean. Oh, I know who it is. Yeah. J.K. Rowling. That's who's <laughs> in the sewer. That is her natural habitat. And then John Valjean beats J.K. Rowling with Marius's unconscious body. And everyone Who's laps. in the sewer? <laughs> it's another nasty little sewage boy, Thenardier. He assumes that Marius is a corpse that Valjean is looting. Because that's what he does. He loots corpses. And he makes Valjean pay him blackmail to let him pass. And then he like grabs a piece of Marius's shirt. Anyway, when Valjean isn't looking, and I'm not quite sure how he accomplishes that, but he does, as proof to be like, oh, he murdered Marius. I've got this shirt as evidence. It'll be a thing. Anyway, they make it out of the sewer and onto a riverbank, but who should be waiting? I don't know anymore. It, I'm out of guesses. It's Javert. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's actually why Thenardier was, was hiding in the sewer in the first place. He's hiding from Javert. And Valjean is like, look, dude, you can take me to prison and fondle my balls or whatever it is you desperately want to do to me, but can you just wait like 10 minutes so I can get this kid to a hospital first because he is definitely bleeding out and also might like have a staph infection or something now. I don't know. We were in a sewer. It's not good. And Javert actually lets him. He really doesn't want to, but Valjean did technically save his life and all. And honestly, he probably wants to give Valjean the chance to take a shower anyway before bringing him in because he is caked in shit. But it's French shit. And? It has a certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> I can't argue with that. It's eau de toilette. <laughs> so Valjean delivers Marius to a doctor, tells Cassette all the stuff that just happened, which is quite a lot, hopefully takes a shower, and then when he steps back outside to deliver himself to Javert, he finds that the inspector has gone. Oh, no. Javert has left because 
he does not know how to deal with this situation because he has a baby brain that can't handle nuanced concepts. He knows that letting Valjean go was the right thing because he saved Javert's life, but also it was the wrong thing because Valjean is a criminal and it's Javert's job to catch the criminals. So rather than try to think beyond an episode of, I don't know, fucking Paw Patrol, Javert instead decides it's much easier to jump off a bridge. Bye. R.I.P. Javert. Yes, sure were, Javert. <laughs> now I'm going to pull my own Victor Hugo, or I'm, I'm going to do my own digression. I'm going to talk a little bit about different Javert suicides in adaptations, because I really don't go into that at all in the adaptations. Because the ones that I looked at handle them all very differently and wildly entertainingly. So I'm just going to go with the top three. <laughs> So there's the one that we watched, because we watched the 2012 adaptation of the musical with your buddy Russell Crowe, who you were just singing about. Yeah, him. And they do it the most literally, in in the way that kind of makes the most sense here in terms of the book, that he jumps off a bridge. They put him on a building, uh, as opposed to a bridge. But he does just kind of look and be like, yep, my poor baby brain, I can't handle it. And he just sort of tumbles off, and then they make a really funny, goofy crunch noise. Like a celery crunch. Crunch. It which kind of takes away from the drama of it, but I guess it's like, well, that's why he drowned. Like, he, he literally, he went crunch. He did. Earlier versions do it a little differently. So there's a film version from, I think, 1998, which uh, Liam Neeson as Jean Valjean and Jeffrey Rush as Javert. And in that one, he's got Valjean in handcuffs, like it's like on a canal edge. And he's got like his gun under Valjean's like jaw. And he's like, oh, I've got you now. Yeah, I'm going to spare you from jail because you saved my life. And implies like, but I'm still going to shoot you in the fucking head because I'm Javert. And then he's like, I, you know, I've tried to live my life by the law, but this is against the law. Ah, life is so hard. And he pops the handcuffs off Valjean, puts them on his own hands behind his back. Yeah, this is Jeffrey Rush. He kind of scowls at Liam Neeson, and then he just jumps in the fucking water. Goodbye. That's it. And he just, he doesn't like bob back up. Like he just jumps in the water and I guess forcibly drowns himself while handcuffed, which is a baller move. Um, It's a way to go. Yeah. It's, it's much more aggressive than just, like, my poor baby brain cannot handle, like, shades of gray. <laughs> so I'm just going to hurl myself off a bridge. Like, it's got much more intense kind of fuck you energy to it. So, I mean, I can respect that, I guess. And then the other one is the most absurd fucking thing I've ever seen. So there's another miniseries, a miniseries adaptation from 2000. It's predominantly very French. It has Gerard Depardieu as uh, Jean Valjean and John Malkovich as Javert. And that one's fucking great because these other adaptations, no one is French. And they're just doing whatever, you know, accent they fucking feel like, so it doesn't seem that weird. But in this one, pretty much all of the principal cast is doing French accents, and then you just have John Malkovich just doing his thing. So he just really sticks out and it's really bizarre and it's extremely funny for that. So this, that one is more like the book where he just kind of fucks off 
and goes to kill himself by himself. And you get a voiceover of him just being like, what do I do? This is so confusing to me. Things don't make sense. Javert's head hurt. And he just, he's like on a shore. And he just walks into the water. And he just keeps walking until he's underwater. Now here's the thing. That takes a lot of commitment. It does. Because your body don't want to do that. No. That's why it's insane. I don't even think you can't. Like you would float, wouldn't you? You could try to fight it. You could just start gobbling down water on purpose. <laughs> Fill up that tummy and them lungs. It's on YouTube. You got. You should look it up. It's completely bad shit. I just wanted to go into those details because the different ways that they choose to interpret Javert just having a complete 404 error is something else. And back to Les Mis, already in progress. Marius fully recovers. He and Grandad reconcile. He's got Mary Cassette. It's all coming up roses. Yay! Sure, all his friends died back at the barricade, but who cares? Fuck them. He's got a super rich fiance now. He's a bourgeois pig. They marry, and it's great. And then Valjean admits to Marius that he's secretly a convict living under a fake name. And that Cassette never knew, but Marius gets to know now because he has a dick, I guess. And then he leaves. It is absolutely unnecessary and stupid. Living away from Cassette makes Daddy Valjean sick and miserable. And then Thenardier shows up and tries to blackmail Valjean to Marius, like, aha, I know he's Jean Valjean, and Marius is like, yeah, me too. Thenardier's like, uh, well, I know he killed someone down in the sewers. I have this piece of cloth as proof. And Marius is like, oh, wait, shit, that's mine. Thenardier's like, oh, well, fuck. And Marius learns that Valjean is the one, you know, by getting that, he learns that he's the one who rescued him that day. Which he never knew, because Valjean never told him. For no reason. Which is fucking dumb, but whatever. So Marius and Cassette run to Valjean's house. Like, why didn't you tell us, you dumb motherfucker? We love you, and we'll stay with you. And Valjean is so happy he dies. <laughs> R.I.P. Jean Valjean. I hope it was some good bread, man. Nice sourdough. A nice uh, baguette. Yeah. Maybe a croissant. The end. So I'm confused by a few things with this tale. And that is an extremely abridged Les Miserables. So you left out Gaston. Not mm. happy about that. <laughs> that's my favorite part of the musical. He tells me how many eggs he can eat. A lot. Oh, yeah, that's right. While uh, Javert's chasing after Valjean being like, Prisoner 24601. They run by Gaston being like, And every day I ate four dozen eggs. <laughs> Continue. Oh, I thought there were other things that confused you. That was the only one? Oh, and there was no bell. So the two things that confused you both had to do with Beauty and the Beast. This book gets the no bell prize. I'm going to murder you when you're asleep tonight. Um, yeah, that's the super bridge like Miserable. I fucking no clipped through a wall to the the final boss, and now I'm here. 
So a few things about Les Mis. VM began planning a major novel about social misery and injustice and all those progressive things that he cared about as early as the 1830s, but it took a full 17 years before the novel came together and was published in 1862. One inspiration VM pulled from was the departure of prisoners from the prison in Toulon, which he wrote about in an earlier short story. On one of the pages of his notes about the prison, he wrote about the story. He wrote in large block letters a possible name for his hero, Jean Trajan. VM apparently knew how good Les Mis was based on how he wrote uh, to his publisher about it. He wrote, quote, My conviction is that this book is going to be one of the peaks, if not the crowning point of my work. You could say it's the mountain my parents fucked on. That's right. <laughs> Publication of Les Mis went to the highest bidder, a Belgian publishing house that undertook a marketing campaign, which was not usually done at the time. The publishing house issued press releases about the work a full six months before the launch. It also initially published only the first part of the novel, Fantine, which was launched simultaneously in major cities. Installments of the book sold out within hours and had enormous impact on French society. One last tidbit. When the novel hit the shelves, it is said that VM was on vacay and he had the shortest correspondence in history. VM asked about the reaction to the work by sending a single character telegram to his publisher asking, question mark? The publisher responded with a single exclamation point to indicate its success. <laughs> See, boomers, zoomers ain't ruining the language. This shit is as old as time. So in terms of films, there's been an adaptation of Les Mis basically everywhere. There's a Japanese Les Mis, a Sri Lankan adaptation, an Egyptian one, an Indian one, a South Korean one, one in Hindu, a Brazilian version, a Turkish version, a Vietnamese version, a Mexican adaptation, an Italian adaptation. It's almost as if the themes of being poor, pissed off, and horny for change and or the regular kind of horny are extremely universal. Who'd have thought? I do want to point out that a lot of adaptations and versions, especially plays, because people are not insane, just take sections of the book and do that. Like, there's a widely popular and adapted version uh, that's just called The Silver Candlesticks or The Bishop's Candlesticks, and it's just the beginning bit about the bishop and Jean Valjean. Uh, there's another called Jean Valjean and the Christmas Doll that's just the part about Valjean adopting Cassette on Christmas Eve. So, like, people just kind of pick and, and choose when adapting a lot for, like, the sake of their own sanity. And then, of course, obviously, in 1980, they were like, hey, you know that 1,500-page novel that's kind of about love and justice and revolution in France, but also about, like, 30 other things? What if they sang about it? Like, Phantom of the Opera, as goofy as it is, is not a huge leap when it comes to a musical adaptation, you know, like we talked about. It's a musical book takes place in an opera. Many of the characters are singers. This is a massive historical novel where no one sings, so just the idea of someone looking at this fucking doorstop of a book and being like, I see a Broadway musical is just insane to me. But this is the second longest running musical in the world and is one of the more popular musicals of all time. So, you know, fucking wild. <laughs> People love it. That's right. Although, having now read the book, some of the songs in retrospect, are really funny to me. Like, Stars is pretty funny, the one, the song that Javert sings before he hurls himself off a bridge. 
where he sings about like praying. <laughs> well, he sings about like praying to God and stuff, and it's like he his brain doesn't go that doesn't function that high. You introduce a, a high that high a concept to him, it's not it, no, no. <laughs> Do you try to do gray morality? And he's just like, nope, this is too hard. Off the bridge I go. On My Own, which is the song Eponine sings, where she's just like, I love Mary so goddamn much. Like, no. Book Eponine don't do that. She has to get shot with a bullet before she's just like, hey, I guess I kind of like you. <laughs> she would not be singing about her feelings. The one that gets me the most, though, the empty chairs at empty tables, which is after everybody's dead. Where he just sings the song where he's like, all my friends are dead. Woof. Book Marius don't give a shit. <laughs> Book Marius is like, cassette, yay! And it's like, oh, you're, you're ABC, buddy. I don't, who are they? Fuck them. <laughs> I'm getting that puss. Book Marius don't give a damn. <laughs> the musical's like, we gotta make this shithead more empathetic. <laughs> Though I would be remiss if I did not mention... The uh, free downloadable 2D fighting beat-em-up game based on the musical. It's called Armjo, which is a pun based on the novel's uh, Japanese title, which I can't pronounce, but it looks like it's spelled like Amujo, but I guess phonetically it's similar to Armjo, but um, I have seen the game. My brother told me about it like a few years ago because he's like, holy shit, Megan, did you know that there's a Japanese fighting game based off of Les Mis where you can make John Valjean and Javert punch each other? Also, there's a character called Robojean. There's also uh, uh, just a character who's the embodiment of judgment. He's just a big judge. He's called the judge. Yeah, you could play as Marius, Jean Valjean, Cassette, uh, Javert, Eponine, Robo, <laughs> Robo Jean, Judge, and a rabbit called Pon Pon. Yeah. You could make them all fight each other. <laughs> There's a lame Miz fighting game. <laughs> and it's free and you can get it. Do it. It's fucking great. It's the funniest goddamn thing. It's so weird. I love that it exists. That's all I've got to say about that. There's nothing worth saying about the Les Mis mu movie adaptation of the musical that hasn't been said. And that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to. And that is, hey, RJ. Sup? Les Mis. Good? Bad? Miz? Not miserable. I mean, it helped the social movements. People, I guess, were into those, you know, spaces in between you found boring. They didn't have TV and Spotify. You gotta, you gotta fill the time some way, somehow. That's fair. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. TN. I, I didn't have to read it, so I liked it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. You kind of read through it. <laughs> I questioned the validity of this. I read through most of it. <laughs> what are your thoughts on all the miserables? I don't know. Fine. I don't... Look, as someone with rampant ADHD, I suppose I can appreciate a good digression, but it's just, it's just a lot. It's just so much. Also, I fucking hate Marius. <laughs> and I really don't have particularly strong feelings about Cassette. Jean Valjean's okay, but he's kind of really stupid. 
And then he dies. <laughs> yeah, and then he dies. Javert is hilarious. I love him, but in that way of just that he's so... He's the worst. Like, he's awful, but in a really fucking funny way. Like, Victor Hugo's a really good writer, obviously. And he paints really interesting portraits of people. But there's just so much. There's so much book. There's so much book. But you know what? He does a better fucking job interconnecting people than Charles Dickens. Okay. He does stupid bullshit coincidences better than Charles Dickens does. Oh, Chuckles. So there you go. That. Yeah, you stick it to Chucky Dickens. Yeah. Also, Victor Hugo said A cap. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Bye. Well, that's about do it for this episode of Odo Lit Class. If you like the show, thank you. Tell other people about it, please. Leave us a rating or review. Subscribe. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell the revolutionaries in the street. Be like, hey, while you're hanging out in that barricade, listen to Odo Lit Class to pass the time. It's better than reading 1,500 pages of something. <laughs> You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and all the things and Patreon and links to all of that are at ohnolitclass.com. You know, our theme song, we don't talk about it very much because we're bad about that, but it's by Best Day. And he does very good music that you can listen to at soundcloud.com slash best-day and also on Spotify where he's just dropped like a whole new EP I think it's on Spotify and Apple Music and you can find it just by searching Best Day under Artist you can listen to this song that's our intro and a whole bunch of new music because I don't credit him enough but it's okay he's my brother it's fine Tarragon I hope you liked this episode we did our best the next episode will be on November 26th is that fucking Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah. Fuck, we do this every year. God damn it. Until then. Pilgrim's Progress. It doesn't have anything to do with the Pilgrims. Until then, I'm What do you mean it doesn't have anything to do with the Pilgrims? It doesn't have anything to do with the Thanksgiving Pilgrims. I'm Megan. All Pilgrims are equal. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. VM decided to try and become the best, the very best, like no one ever had, only a stake had, the most dangerous Pokemon of all. You mean like no one ever was? Oh shit.